turn together to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the third book of the New Testament. It is the third Gospel. And we are in chapter 12 this morning. We will be looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 12. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were beginning to trample one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues, and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. We ask this morning that you would renew our wills to follow after your instructions in your word. Lord, this morning, we ask that you would bring us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a world today that is filled with pretending, don't we? We live in a world in which it is commonplace for students to cheat on exams and tests. As a matter of fact, we now have... 
programs that you can take essays and run them through to see if they have been plagiarized off of the Internet. We live in a world in which it is commonplace now for people to make things up out of whole cloth on their resumes. Say they have held jobs that they've never held. We live in a world in which we make ourselves smarter not by going to school and educating ourselves, not by reading books, but rather by looking at our resume and simply saying that we graduated from Columbia or from Harvard. And voila, we are smart. We live in a world in which it is commonplace for us to hear headlines of someone being caught in these lies. Someone being caught in these kinds of lies over and over again. But you see, this is not merely a part of the Internet age. This is not merely American culture. This is bound up in the heart of sinful man. We long to have others see us for better than we are. We long to take the easy way out. And this was just as true in Jesus' day as it is today here in Houston, Texas. And so we have warnings this morning from our Lord Jesus Christ. Warnings about pretending, about hypocrisy, and of a solution that is found in the Gospel. We see three things this morning here from our text. The first thing we see is a temptation to falsehood that grips each and every one of us. The second thing that we see is a question, what do we have to fear then? And then the third thing that we know is that we have a need for true words, to stop pretending and to be truthful. Well, let's begin then and look at this temptation to falsehood that comes before us. Jesus begins this section here with a warning. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, you will recall, Jesus has just gotten through a battle royale at dinner as the Pharisees have sought to attack Him and undermine Him. And now we see that such a large crowd is around Him and they so long to be close to Jesus, to be seen by Jesus, that they're actually trampling each other to get His attention. And Jesus gives His disciples this warning that they are to beware hypocrisy. Now, what is hypocrisy? Well, it comes from a Greek word that means to act or acting. You see, you've probably noticed this the last time that you watched a film that had makeup special effects where they can make a man seem 60 years older than he is. Or they can make a woman look like a man. Or a man like a woman. Or a man or a woman look like an animal. Just by the mask that they place upon the actor. Well, this was what they did in ancient times as well. To be a hypocrite was to be an actor. And if you wanted to appear happy, there was a mask that you had that was smiling and you would put it up in front of your face and you would be happy. And if you needed to show concern, then you'd have a different mask for concern and you would change masks and immediately you would be concerned. Your inner emotions and self were portrayed in the mask. 
Now, the sad fact of human history is, is that our hypocrisy is not limited to acting in a play. We act all the time, don't we? We set up masks that let others see us as we desire them to see us, that oftentimes don't even reach the reality of who we are. Why is this? Well, it's what we desire, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, we want to appear successful to others. When was the last time that you walked up and saw a little-known acquaintance or a friend of a friend, and they asked you how you were doing, and you said, Oh, awful. I'm incompetent at my job. I can't raise my kids right. And I'm in financial trouble. No, what do you say? Everything's just fine. The place actually where this kind of hypocrisy rears its head most is in the church building, where everyone is supposed to be smiling all of the time, where everything is supposed to be good and perfect and successful. We even have false theologies that promulgate this. There are people on the TV and on the radio that say, if you really are a good Christian, then you are successful and wealthy. So we pretend. It's our desires because we want other people to admire us. We don't want to be the wallflower. We don't want to be second class. We want people to think we are important. And this is something that happens throughout all of our lives, right? Many of you could think back to your high school days. Some of you are in high school now, and you know this, in which your entire status and being and importance is bound up in the clothes you wear, the sneakers you have or don't have, the car you get a ride in. But it's no different as we grow up, is it? We buy homes that are gigantic. And people look at them and they think we are successful and they don't realize we can't afford the furniture to furnish them. Someone drives by our house and they see a gorgeous car in our driveway not ever realizing that the engine doesn't work and it won't run. But it looks like we're successful. And this plays right into the way the world works, doesn't it? The world is willing to judge everything by appearances. First and foremost, we don't have time to go any deeper than the surface, do we? There is a new study that has come out that says that the attention span of an average person is now one second less than that of a goldfish. An average person's attention is eight seconds. A goldfish has nine. And so you see, as we don't even have the attention to, to think through things substantively, you can see how we judge someone. This person must be good because they're wearing sharp clothes. This person must be a mess because his shoes are untied. We judge everything by the surface. This is how hypocrisy starts in our lives. But hypocrisy doesn't just start. Jesus warns us it spreads. You cannot just let it into one area of your life. We think that we could be a hypocrite at work and be safe at home and safe with our friends. But that's not how hypocrisy works. Jesus gives us a wonderful illustration of this. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, you know what leaven is, don't you? Perhaps you know it by its more common name, yeast. 
Leaven is a type of yeast. And you know what you do with leaven is you take some of it and you mix it in to dough. You're going to bake bread or you're going to make pizza dough. You just mix it in, knead it up, and it spreads throughout all of the dough, right? You can't say, well, in this quarter of the lump, I'm going to have blow up with leaven and yeast, and the rest I want matzah style. No, you can't do that. As a matter of fact, if you want real matzah bread, you have to take leaven out of the house entirely in case some contaminates it. This is how hypocrisy works. It gets into our lives. It never starts out full-blown. No one starts and says, you know, I think I'm going to be a gigantic hypocrite. I'm going to make up everything about my life. But you know what they do do? They tell one lie. And then what do you have to do? You have to tell a lie to cover up the lie. And then you have to tell a lie to cover up the covering lie. And it spins out of control, doesn't it? To where you spend more time thinking about how to present yourself as someone you are not. You have to remember details you have given someone else. Hypocrisy. It grows and grows out of control. And the worst part is, is that at least in the beginning it's successful, isn't it? We gain respect. And we see this even in the news when someone gets caught. Sometimes they've been living a lie. They've been working at a job for 20 years based on a false resume. The very dangerous part is, however is that it can be so successful and so common that we begin to think it's real. Hey, have you ever had this experience with your spouse? They, they tell a story, and it's a story you've heard because it's your spouse about a thousand times. They, they tell it to everyone. And in the telling, the story changes a little bit. You know, the, the food gets bigger, or the clothes get brighter, or the action gets hotter, and you notice that it has changed. And you might say to your spouse, you know, that, that didn't really happen that way. There weren't eight dogs. There was one and a chihuahua. And they, but the problem is they've told the eight-dog story so many times, they will look at you with straight face and say, no, there absolutely were eight. I remember it vividly. You see... We fool ourselves when we keep living in the surface that becomes our reality. That's who we are. And so Jesus then tells us that we have to be careful. We have to beware of this in our life. But the problem is that hypocrisy fails us. It doesn't change the reality of who we are, does it? Just because you say you went to Harvard doesn't mean you did. Just because you have one pair of sharp clothes doesn't mean you're wealthy, does it? You see, we are still who we are. Isn't it far better to bring about real change? This is what Jesus is warning us. We need to work less on our outside and more on our inside. More on the reality of who we are. Because then who we are outwardly will reflect reality. And as we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are renewed from the, out, from the inside out, our outside will then show the glory of Jesus. Because you see, the problem with hypocrisy is it brings about fear. 
obvious, isn't it? When you're living a false life, you're always afraid you're going to be found out. You know, for some of us, as young people, when we told a lie, even a little white lie, we would live in fear day after day, week after week, that somehow we would be found out. It's a fear of being discovered. But there's a related fear, a fear that we would fall short of our expectations. You know, if we talk a big game about ourselves, eventually someone is going to ask us to show. If we claim that we are a great pitcher, eventually someone's going to put on a glove and say, well, let me see your fastball. And we live in fear of this kind of life because we are not even able to enjoy the benefits of our own hypocrisy. We're trapped in sin. And we're trapped because we know that it always gets revealed. Don't we? Sometimes it's in the here and now. I was reminded this past week of a story of the great point-shaving scandal in Boston College in 79 and 80. And this was three players or four players, depending on who you believe, that played for Boston College, they would play in order to keep the score close enough so that the mobsters that were paying them off could win bets. They were cheating. Not playing to lose, but, but they were cheating. And at the end of the season came, they decided this was it, and it was done, and it was behind them, and they were never going to do this again, ever. And they all breathed a sigh of relief until a few months later the FBI came knocking For you see, the FBI had found out, not because they were investigating this, but because they had been investigating the mobsters for something else. And this came up as an aside. They were found out. They thought they were safe. And their whole world collapsed. One of them got ten years in prison. A point shave. But even if we escape notice in the here and the now, we have to know that the God who sees all and knows all things, the good and perfect judge of all, will reveal all in the judgment. That's what Jesus means when He says, there is nothing that is covered, no matter how many blankets you put on top of it. There is nothing that is secret, no matter how many secret vaults you put it in. It will be revealed. Jesus gives us an illustration that I think strikes home. Many of us are willing to say things about others and even about ourselves when we think no one else will hear. In inner recesses of our homes, this inner room that Jesus is speaking of is a room that has no windows. It's at the very center. And what Jesus says is, what you have said will be declared from the rooftops for the whole town to hear. Could you imagine if you lived your whole life with a hot mic on you that was broadcast to your parents, your boss, and everyone you know. You see, Jesus says this is how we should think. Because everything we do and say will be revealed at the end. There is no escape from this. So the only solution, Jesus says, is to stop concealing, is to stop seeking others' approval, is to stop putting up a front. It's vanity. It's a losing cause. 
Well, what do we have then to fear? Jesus tells us that we should not fear those who kill the body, but we should fear those, we should fear Him, that is, who can cast the body and soul into hell. So, what Jesus is saying is He's relating this to His hypocrisy. He says we should not live our lives in fear of what other people think about us. We should live our lives in light of the One who is the judge. Now, Fear is real, isn't it? The world is a dangerous place. We are frail and we are human. You know, I often wonder if FDR realized that when he told the soldiers in World War II that we had nothing to fear but fear itself, that many of them were still afraid. I would personally be afraid of the artillery shells and the bullets and the gas, and all of the other things that could happen to me. We live in a world that is dangerous. But what Jesus is saying here is we cannot let this fear grip us. We cannot let it rule over us. We cannot be ruled by what others think of us and by what we think we have to project. We have to remember that this life is just temporary. There is... An afterlife. There is a judgment and there is eternity. And so we will be faced with things that are fearful. Today you will be faced with things that cause others to scorn you, to mock you, to make fun of you, to perhaps pass you over for a promotion, to maybe sue you. Tomorrow, you may be faced with things that our brothers and sisters around the world are faced with. Things that bring about torture, death. How will you face that fear? How can you stand up in the face of that? The only way you can is to follow Jesus. The only way you can is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that He is right and true And to know that there is something beyond the difficulties you face. That this is not your best life. You see, if we think about it this way, it will influence the way that we behave and we think about ourselves substantively. Our real focus should be on the eternal. This is not popular today, is it? Who walks around and says, you know... I really have a healthy fear of the Lord. When was the last time you heard that at Walmart? Or at the basketball game? It's not in vogue today, is it? But yet God is the one who sees all things. God is the one who is the judge. And Jesus reminds us that there will be a judgment. He gives us this reminder in very vivid terms. He uses the word hell here. But you have to understand that He's using it in a way to catch our attention. Not in some amorphous, theoretical place of judgment. The word here for hell is the word Gehenna, that you may have heard before. And it describes, amongst other things, a place. A place where there was burning fire and sulfur and ash and stench, and you wanted no part of it. 
When Jesus says there is a judgment of hell, fear the one who can cast you into hell. This is not a theory you can take and leave. Jesus wants you to feel the flames lick. He wants you to hear the gnashing of teeth. He wants you to know that judgment is real. Because when we realize that, then we understand that the substance is far more important than what a passing acquaintance thinks of us. Our speech will be directed in light of the living God, not middle management. You see, Jesus says what we have to fear is the reality of life. And that should drive us away from the surface to the substance. There's another fear that gets resolved by viewing the Lord our God in the right frame. Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Now, another fear that we have is that we will be forgotten. Perhaps you've had this experience either yourself or with one of your children where you have gone into a store And become separated. And oftentimes it's the fear of the child that they have been left behind. That mom and dad have given up looking for me. They've gotten in the car. They've gone home. And I bet you right now they are serving my portion of the dessert to my brothers and sisters. But what's the reality of life? The reality of life is they would never think of leaving you behind. And they're searching for you. And they will not leave until they have you. Jesus says that's how we should view the Lord our God. He doesn't abandon us because we're a bit scruffy around the edges. He doesn't leave us or forsake us because we're unimportant. Now the one who is the judge of all and who holds eternity in his hands also tenderly cares for each and every one of his children. Not one will be forgotten. Do you see how almost over the top Jesus makes his point here? He says, you know, it's like sparrows. Now, you know what sparrows are good for, don't you? Pretty much nothing. All that you do with sparrows in this day and age is, if you are the poorest of the poor, you would buy these birds for a sacrifice. No one says, let's go home and have nice breast of sparrow for dinner. There's not enough breast of sparrow for dinner. Right? And Jesus says, sparrows are sold two for a penny. They have no worth. They're the cheapest things in the marketplace. As a matter of fact, they're so cheap, Mark tells us that you can get five for two pennies. So not only are they cheap, it's buy four, get one free. And yet God is aware of each and every sparrow. Do you know you're more valuable than a sparrow? Jesus tells you that here in His Word. You are much more valuable than a sparrow. You are not forgotten by God. You don't need to put on airs for God. You don't need to seem special for God. 
He loves you for the substance of who you are. If you know Jesus Christ by faith, if you have appropriated His work upon the cross by trusting in Him, you are in relationship with God and nothing can separate you. Not the wrong color shirt, not the wrong shoes, not the lame car, not the small house. Nothing. The Lord our God cares for His people. Jesus proves this point. We are secure, not because of who we seem to be, not even because of who we are, but because of who the Lord is. There is our security. Well, this takes us then to our third point from our text this morning. And that is the need for true words. If we are to avoid falsehoods, if we are to avoid false pretenses, Jesus then also calls us to the opposite. He calls us to be true and to use true words. And He gives us three venues in which this is to be seen. The first is when we are faced with Jesus. Do you see this in verse 8 and in verse 9? And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, Jesus starts by making a point. If it's important for us not to be forgotten in the here and now, how much more important is it for us to not be forgotten in eternity? And Jesus says, I will not forget you. If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you. Now, what does it mean to say that we acknowledge Jesus? I think it's more than a casual glance. You know, it's like men do at a a gathering or a social event. They see each other across the room and they give them the nod. Sometimes they go way over the top and they follow it up with a sup. They're acknowledging each other. That's not what Jesus means here. That's casual. What Jesus means here is that we are to admit that what Jesus says is true. What He says about Himself, what He says about us, what He says about the world. We are acknowledging that Jesus is right and true. And we are also acknowledging as a result of that, that we are in submission to Him. Our lives belong to Him. He is the Lord. We are not. It also means that we are to be open about our commitment to Him. This is the great challenge of our day and age, brothers and sisters, as it becomes less and less culturally applicable, acceptable to be a Christian. When someone asks you at your office, why do you have a Bible on your desk? Why do you close your door and bow your head at lunch? Why do you go to church? What do we answer? Do we answer with humor, deflecting? Do we answer saying, oh, I've got to do that, keep my family happy? Or do we acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord of our lives? This is a battle you will face every single day. Now, I am not saying that what you need to do in every single instance in which someone talks to you is to get a Bible out and to read them 40 Bible verses. But you must acknowledge that you are Jesus's. He is yours. 
If you want Jesus to acknowledge you at the judgment, if you want His work to cover you, then you must acknowledge Him. There's a second statement that Jesus makes that's odd, that gives us a second venue for using true words. It's here in verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, if you're like me, you come to this text and you're a bit confused. What does Jesus mean? I can make fun of Jesus, but not fun of the Holy Spirit. And did I say something wrong about the Holy Spirit? Now I must be damned forever because that's the unforgivable sin. What did I do? Now, I don't think this is a game to be played. I think it's actually quite simple. What Jesus is saying is, it is possible to deny Him and then to be convinced by the truth of God's Word. It is possible not to believe in Jesus and then to come to a point in your life where you are at the end of your rope and you know that you must trust Him with everything that you are. But when we deny and blaspheme the Holy Spirit, what Jesus means here is that we are denying the very truth of the Gospel, that anyone can be saved, that there is any worth in the Gospel, that there is any purpose in grace. This is not about a limit on God's grace. This is about denying the reality of grace entirely. The famous theologian Herman Bavinck puts it this way, The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, therefore, does not simply consist in unbelief, nor in resisting and grieving the Holy Spirit in general. It consists in a conscious and deliberate attribution of what has been clearly perceived as God's work to the influence and activity of Satan. That is a deliberate blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, a defiant declaration that the Holy Spirit is the spirit from the abyss, that the truth is a lie, and that Jesus is the devil. It is a conscious rejection of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has consequences. It is either believed or denied. And based upon that belief or denial hangs your eternal destiny. Jesus is saying this is the time for true words. Not for games, not saying something you think someone else wants to hear. You have plenty of opportunities for that in church, don't you? You're interviewed for membership. How can I speak so that the elders will be most impressed? The pastor asks me what's going on in my house. How can I answer that seems most spiritual? You see, what Jesus is saying here is that this is not the time for playing. It's the time for truth. If you're struggling, say you're struggling. If you need hope, say you need hope. The gospel is there for you. There is a third and final way in which we see Jesus tell us that we are to use true words. And that is when we come under attack, when we are faced with attack. You see it here in verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues 
and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, notice first how verse 11 begins. Little words make a difference in the Bible. When, not if. Persecution comes. It comes in many forms. But persecution is coming. And Jesus gives us both examples. Both a religious persecution from the synagogue and a cultural and civil persecution from the rulers and the authorities. Now, what, what is Jesus saying here? Is He saying we should cancel all Sunday school, never have VBS again, and not read our Bibles, because if we ever really need it, the Holy Spirit will speak on our behalf. Next week, we're just going to get up and pretend to preach. Not even read the text ahead of time, right? No. This is not an excuse for laziness. This is not about being unstudied. What this is about is, have you ever had the opportunity, no, that's not, have you ever had it happen to you where you were taking an exam? An exam that you had prepared for for many days before. You'd learned the material inside and out. And then you sit down and the paper's put in front of you and perhaps it's the length of the exam, or perhaps it's the first question you're not sure about the answer, that you begin suddenly to freak out. And you're not even sure you can answer the first question. You know the one, name? And you don't know what to do. That's what Jesus is talking about. You could know your Bible inside and out. You could be able to cite verses from memory. But when you are drawn into the situation where you are put on the spot, where you are being persecuted, you have no ability to answer because of your anxiety, because of your fear. And what Jesus is saying is, do not be afraid that God will abandon you, because He will not. He will actually be there for you. He will equip you. He will give you the true words you need. Because you see... Having true words is not your job. It's God's job. He will put them into your mouth. He will calm your heart so that you can speak truth at the time when you most need to. Don't be distracted by the world around you. Don't be troubled with fear. God is in charge. No matter who abandons you, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And isn't that what's important, really? The reality of life? Not hypocrisy. The reality of life is trusting Jesus. And trusting His words. They are true. 